Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Dawn, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I, uh, my, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to say this and get this out there. I know none of you will believe it, but I'm a little nervous. So <laughs> to take the power out of that, I'm just going to say it right out loud. Um, my home group is Women's Saturday Soul Searchers. It meets on Saturday mornings in Ballard from 10 to 11 a.m. My sobriety date is uh, May 14th, 2012. So I have just about two and a half years of sobriety right now. So, my story has changed over the last three years. Um, When I first came into AA, um, I used to say, when when I started talking, that is, that I started drinking because my mom died. And she died about seven years ago, and I kind of went over a cliff. I had a really serious clinical depression, and... I was drinking a lot, and it just kept increasing and increasing and increasing to the point where I, you know, it just happened really quickly. Um, At the same time, I was filled with anxiety about everything. Um, I felt unworthy and unlovable. Um, I was mortified about how I was living, um, which also made me want to drink, of course, to forget... uh, how I wasn't living according to my own moral code. The part of my story that didn't change is that for the last two years of my drinking, I had daily blackouts, and I was a pass-out drunk. I did shameful things. I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm going to try to stay focused on the solution, but I think it's important to share a little bit of what my background is. Um, What I didn't realize when I came into AA is that I'd really always been a problem drinker. Um, I surrounded myself with people that drank like I did when I was in college and high school because it felt so normal to me, and I didn't understand that the way we were all drinking and the way I drank for my whole life was really extreme. Um, (laughs) So when I came into AA um, for my very first meeting, I knew nothing about it, and I spent several weeks trying to work up the courage to come to a meeting. I knew I had a problem. I knew that I was an alcoholic. There was no question in my mind. Um, And I knew I had to do something differently because every morning I'd wake up telling myself that I wasn't going to drink that day, and every night I would drink. And I know this is a very familiar story, but um, honestly... It was a nightmare. Um, So I finally worked up the courage to come to a meeting, and it happens to be my home group meeting. I don't know how often that happens, but I drove into the parking lot, and I threw up. I was so nervous. (laughs) And I walked in, and I met a really awesome woman who turned out to be my sponsor. She welcomed me with open arms, gave me a big hug, and she said to me, I am so glad that you're here. And that made all the difference to me. And 
Um, I didn't drink that night, even though I had drank the night before. And this particular meeting gives out 24-hour coins. Every Saturday we do coins. And um, I stood up and I said, I can't take a 24-hour coin because I drank 12 hours ago. And I got so much love from that room that I knew at that point that my life was changing and that things might be able to be different. I had hope for the very first time in so long. Um, I was still scared. <laughs> I was still all those other things, but I had this tiny glimmer of hope, and I saw these other women who were happy and laughing, which I couldn't really understand at all at the time. I think I cried for every meeting that I was at for the first six months, and people would look at me, and I had this little notebook that I'd write everything down in because, I don't know, that's what my brain told me I was supposed to do to try to understand what was going on around me. There was so much language that I didn't get, and it's like a kind of a club if you don't know the secret handshake, it's hard to understand what's going on, right? So, um, but once I did open myself up to people and start talking and start sharing, I got a sponsor. Um, I started working the steps. And all this time, it was still hard for me. I'm not saying I didn't have cravings. I had cravings every single day. I wasn't one of those people that... I hear about sometimes in meetings where they surrendered and they never had another craving. That's not my story. And in fact, um, I am going to tell you a little bit about the one relapse that I had because it was so instrumental in my getting and staying sober the last two and a half years. Um, I was, um, it was about five and a half months sober. I had been doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. I was feeling better physically. I was remembering things. I was making some friends. And I had plans for the big stuff. I knew that if um, there was a party at work, there's always booze at parties at where I work. I wasn't going to go to that. I wasn't going to put myself in that situation. If there was, if I had a fight with my husband, I knew that I had to call my sponsor before I went out the door to get to go to the liquor store. What I wasn't prepared for was the little things and the litany of little things that can really start driving you crazy. And I had this day, and it happened to have been Mother's Day, so I was kind of in a, I don't know, a bad mood because of that anyway. And then someone caught me off in traffic, and then I was going to go to the car wash, and there was too long a line. I mean, this is stupid shit, right? But... <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to swear. That was one of the, the rules I just broke. Um, stupid stuff. And I just found myself driving to the liquor store. And the entire way there, I'm saying, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? But I went in and um, bought four mini bottles of vodka and chugged them all as fast as I could in the backseat of my car. This is not how a normal person drinks. And I think I needed to do that to recognize how messed up my drinking was. You know, if I had any doubt in my mind before that I was an alcoholic, that totally blew that doubt out of the water. So luckily for me, I did have a great sponsor. And instead of what I wanted to do, which was crawl under a rock somewhere, I went to a meeting and I told what I had done. And I cried. 
because that's what I do. Um, so that's what it was like. And what it's like now is that um, I still occasionally get hooked by cravings. I'm an alcoholic. I'm always going to, I think, have cravings for stuff. But what I've learned in this program is that I can be uncomfortable. I, I didn't know that before. I didn't know that I could be um, sit through something that was disturbing to me. Um, I didn't understand that I could have fears and still be okay out the other side. I had certain things that I was so scared of. <laughs> this is going to sound so melodramatic, but I really believed that I might die if they happened to me. Um, my husband leaving was a big one, and he was so close to leaving me <laughs> before I got sober. Um, you know, I have been given a gift, and for me, um, most days, these days, I can be sober and I can be happy. And I think to honor and to keep the gift, and I know for myself, I have to work at that every day. And sometimes that doesn't um, feel like what I want to do. <laughs> um, I'm basically a lazy person, and um, you know it's hard for me to keep up routines, but I have found that the routines are what keep me sane. And when I first um, you know, found my daily meeting that I go to every morning, um, really helped me uh, stay centered. Um, let me see. I know that I'm an alcoholic. I know that I'm powerless over alcohol and that if I drink again, my life will be unmanageable. I have more or less found a higher power of my understanding. Um, and I've asked for help. Those are the things that I recommend to all new people. I go to several meetings a week. Um, and like I said, when I was new, I found a daily meeting that really made a huge difference in my life. And I have a service position. Um, I'm the GSR from um, Women's Saturday Soul Searchers. Keeping busy and um, doing these simple things that I was told to do by my sponsor are the things on a daily basis that keep me sober. When I don't go to meetings, when I find myself in that rut where I don't even want to brush my teeth in the evening because, you know, when I was drinking all the time, I always passed out. I never had to brush my teeth. But... What I realize is that um, it just means I need to, you know, go to more meetings or I need to work with one of my sponsees. Um, today I have three sponsees and uh, meeting with them is one of the joys of my life. Um, today I was lucky enough to be able to do a fifth step with one of them and we cried <laughs> because that's what I do. Um and it was it was awesome, you know, and to see people grow and come in and be so scared and remember what that was like, how scared I was, and know that even though I had some really bad things happen to me in my life and I made some really crappy decisions and I hurt people that I loved, um, you know, I get to start over. So let's see. And then I'll just close with this. Um, when I was drinking, I used to think that it gave me a sense of joy, that it gave me the ability to be free and easy and happy with people. 
what I didn't realize is that it really was taking my joy away. And I, I mean, I did at the end, but for a long time, I thought it was something that was good for me, right? In a, in a twisted sort of way that didn't come out the way I meant it to come out. But, um, I now have moments of joy in my life that I never had in the 30 years of my life before I was, when I was a drinker, um, pure feelings that I get from really simple things like, for instance, driving down Wallingford Avenue at 6.30 in the morning, coming to Water's Edge, seeing the cityscape, listening to a, I don't know, a meat puppet song really loud on the radio, and just feeling so happy that I'm not hungover and that I'm up in the morning and that I'm going to go to go see people that I care about. Um, I'm happy now, and I'm sober. Thank you so much for letting me be of service tonight. Thank you for listening. I, I am Jerry, but I could be Cynthia. <laughs> and I'm an alcoholic. Yay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. <sighs> hmm? <laughs> yes, so I, um, my sobriety date is New Year's Day, 1990, and my home group is Empire Way. We meet there Mondays and Wednesday nights, and I, I have a, a summer home group, I call it, and it's the Lodge, but really my home group is, is Empire Way. Um, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, I'm just still stuck on, I could be Cynthia. <laughs> that would be so festive. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'd be taller. I'd have longer legs. I'd have longer hair. It'd be great. But I'm not Cynthia. I'm, I'm, I'm me. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm me. My first drink happened um, on June 7th, 1976, 2.45 in the afternoon. I know the date and the time of my first and my last drinks. Come, I'm a freak like that. Uh, what was happening previous to that first drink? I was um, I was student body president in my high school. I was an Eagle Scout. I taught Sunday school. I was going to UCLA on a full track scholarship. I was student body president at my high school. I was all of that and a bag of chips. I was already in. There was a group of uh, folks that hung out. Uh, I hung out with my senior year in high school. We called ourselves a dirty dozen plus one. I was the plus one. I was the guy that drove people home after parties. I was everybody's friend. I was nobody's boyfriend. I uh, had a master key to every lock in the school. I don't know why they gave that to an 18-year-old kid, but they did, which got me into the club. So uh, my senior year in high school was full of lots of... Uh, Adventures, we'll say. Uh, what happened on June 7th, 1976? It was baccalaureate Sunday. I sang in the church choir at my little church, La Puente Foursquare Church. I sang my little solo of Mindry Couch every Sunday, or almost every Sunday, in the youth choir. And I told my parents that I would be home in time to make it to church. Church started at 5.45. Baccalaureate service happened that day at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Plenty of time. But um, one of the guys in my group, his name was Bobby. His dad had stopped drinking and had taken all the booze out of the bar in his house and packed it in these boxes and put it in his garage. 
And Bobby's dad was spending way too much time in the garage. And he didn't want to do that anymore. So he uh, offered us, us, this little group of guys, uh, 20 bucks a piece if we could make that problem just go away for him. So, you know, there's 13 of us. You know, how hard could it be? 20 bucks, 1976, that was like, that was, that was real money. I, my, I drove a Pinto station wagon, and it cost me six bucks to fill my tank up with gas. $20 was, that was like, that was like date night movie, if I ever had a date. So I told my parents that I'd be home in time uh, to, 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 to sing in the choir. So I went to Bobby's house. There was 13 of us. I started drinking. My first drink was Crown Royal out of the purple bag. I'll never forget that feeling to this day. Just talking about it. I can taste it. I can feel it going down my throat. I feel my toes warming up. I'm just happy. It changed everything. Now, again, previous to that, I never really drank. I never drank. I never drank. Not even really drank. I never had a drink. Because... Um, why that was, was I was very, um, I'll say religious, for lack of a better word. And we had these guys used to come to my church from Teen Challenge. And they were these hardcore alcoholics and addicts. And they would say, don't do what we did, because you'll end up like we did. And they came from my like Chino prison. They are teardrop tattoos and stuff. I go, cool. I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. So I never did until that day. And then I was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. So Crown Royal was my first drink. My second drink was some Michelob beer. My third drink was Boone Farm Strawberry Hill. In that, in that order, that's kind of how that rolled. So that's kind of a snapshot of what my drinking career would look like. So I, you know, the, the, the next part of what I'm going to describe to you really was told to me. I don't really recall because I blacked out. But what people told me was that I uh, apologized a lot. I said, don't remember me like this. I'm not like this. I was very concerned with how I looked. And um, not to remember me like this because this isn't who I am. Uh, and I puked. I came to, there was this big roaring party going on at Bobby's house when I came to. I did some other things. I passed out again. And then I said I should probably call home and tell them I'm going to be late. So by the time I was conscious enough to do that, it was um, 3 o'clock in the morning and my dad answered the phone and he said, you're, you're already late. <laughs> <laughs> so I just stayed there. But I, I the next day was, was graduation practice. I... Um, was full of remorse. People, I got all this data at the graduation practice from all these people that were giving me this data. And uh, I was full of shame, remorse, grief, vowed that I would never, ever do it again. Because graduation was coming, and I had this big part to do. I had this big speech to make. I had, I, I had stuff to do. I had to like, look good. I had to get my, my leisure suit that I had bought for graduation. I had to get that like, cleaned up because I was looking good. I had to get my platform shoes all shined up. It's 1976, I had it going on, just so you know. So I did my little speech, and um, I was making screwdrivers in the back of the bus on the way to grad night at Disneyland, and I don't think I, well, I know I didn't draw, I did not draw a sober breath from that day until um, 
I'll fast forward to when I when when I when I when I woke up. Uh, I won't go into this long drunkalogue, but I will give a couple of little highlights of what had happened between the time of my first drink and the time of my last drink and what happened, how I got to AA. Uh, when I drank in college and after college, uh, I had roommates that would hide the phone when I drank because I would drunk dial people. And it was when like long distance was really expensive. <laughs> and I had an answering machine at my house too. And I would leave myself messages, like an old school answering machine, like when you have to like the little tapes in them and stuff. So I would call myself, leave myself messages when I was drunk <laughs> about don't drink like this again. <laughs> You are in big trouble. Dude, you have no idea how messed up you are right now. You won't remember making this. You won't remember making this call, but you'll listen to it tomorrow. You'll know that you made the call. I did that a lot. My roommates would hide the phone because I would have $300 phone bills and I had no idea who I was calling. I call people all over the country. Drunk. But I didn't have a problem. I was just, you know, young. Uh, I'll fast forward. Uh, now I'm, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get sober here pretty soon, but not right away, because I have 27 whole minutes. This is, this is awesome. This little time right <laughs> So uh, I went to school, and I went to, I, I went to UCLA, and I was asked to leave, is what I used to say to people when they asked me, do you have a degree? And I said, no. I was asked to leave. And that's not really true. The truth is I was given an option to either go to jail um, or leave school and my transcripts behind because of some of the activity I was involved in in school, which wasn't, they weren't really happy about that. So, but I never really told anybody that, really. I just said I was kicked out. And I told my parents that I quit. I lied. Uh, they knew why, but I, they, they, I, I didn't know that they knew until I made them into them years later. And they owned knowing the whole time what had happened to me. Uh, but I had a, my, my luck was, I went from the golden child, then I drank, and then my, all of a sudden I had this long string of bad luck, like really bad luck, like really, really bad luck. I went to jail a lot. Um, I wasn't Catholic, but a lot of my friends were, and so um, they would give up drinking for Lent. And so I would give up drinking for Lent. And I would start drinking on, for good, on good Friday, and I can't tell you how many times I've spent, how many Easter Sundays I've spent in jail. <laughs> because that's what I did. Because I, didn't, I never drank in safety, ever. I never took a normal drink, ever. And I didn't really get that until way later. I mean, the first time I drank, I, I blacked out. The first time I ever put alcohol in my body, it was on. So I don't know if I was born an alcoholic. I don't know that. But I do know that when alcohol got introduced to this body, an alcoholic was born. That I do know for sure. I have never had a drink in safety, ever. I've never had a drink in my life, ever. So I'm convinced of that now, but I wasn't always. 
I did not think I was an alcoholic when I got here. I had other issues. So I got arrested a lot. I was very arrogant. I um, had really bad luck. What can I say? When I drank, I had bad luck. Bad things happened to me when I drank. I got every time. Uh, so I was living in the Bay Area. I was living in uh, San Mateo. I was a stockbroker at the time. And I had a really great job and this really nice car that I slept in. Uh, and I was sleeping in it because I couldn't pay the rent on my apartment because I couldn't pay my bills because every time I got paid, I would get drunk. Every time. So I didn't know how to take care of my I mean, I, I thought I was crazy. So what happened was I, you know, had, I was a really good stockbroker, by the way. I was really good. My customers really liked me. I did really well. So part of my life looked very together. I looked really good. I had great clothes. I had a really amazing car. I had an awesome apartment that had no furniture in it. And the other part of my life was that I was getting ready to go to jail in Redwood City, in San Mateo County for a year for uh, 14601.1As. That's driving while your driver's license is suspended or revoked. I had 17 of those. I had my third DUI and, uh, and some other various <coughs> and sundry charges. So the whole... And when, when I was in court in front of the judge, he said, you know, you're, you're, you have a total disdain for the, the law, Mr. Montgomery. You don't have any, you know, you're completely entitled. You're a mess. And we're going to throw a book at you. This is your third DUI. I go, and I said, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Because I thought I knew better, right? Because I, I thought, again, I'm being set up. This, is, this sucks. Because I was told my first charge was a wet reckless because I was right on the border. My blood alcohol level was just, just below. So the, in California, they call them wet reckless if you're not, if you're not drunk. But what the, 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 the footnote is, is that if you get another wet reckless, the first wet reckless becomes a DUI. So I had two wet recklesses, and then the last time I got pulled over, I had a .2 something blood alcohol level. And so that one I could own. I go, I know I, not, I once I was really drunk <laughs> when I got caught. One, I, that one I own, but the other two, they, they, they won't, they won't, no, they don't count. So I did, um, I was, I was fortunate enough to um, get sentenced to uh, work for a little facility in Redwood City where I could go to jail at night and go to work during the day. And what my days looked like when I did that was that I would get up at 5.30 in the morning at the work for a little facility, take my shower, eat my breakfast, put my suit on, sign out at the front desk with the sheriff, walk out of the jail, over this little bridge to the Toys R Us parking lot over 101 to where my car was parked that I had no license to drive. I would get in my car and drive to Palm Liquors in San Mateo that opened at 6 in the morning, and I would buy a six-pack of beer, and I would drink it in my car that I have no license to drive to my office in Burlingame. And then I would do my stockbroker job. Become so important. And then I would do my day and I would 
whatever. Some days I would drink during lunch or whatever, and I'd go home to the jail. I did that every day for a year. Well, actually for 90 days. Because it, it, well, I did it for a year. I was work for a little for a year, but in 90, for 90 days, it's kind of funny how they do this. Um, in Redwood City, in this work for a little facility I was in, if you have more than a year or more than 90 days to serve, they give you the weekends off. It's crazy. So what they would do, like on Fridays, you got to go from Friday night at 6 o'clock to Sunday night at 6 o'clock. You were like not in jail. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> Technically, you're still in custody, but you get to go do your thing. You get to go home, do your apartment, your family, whatever. Uh, and then Sunday night, you had to be back in jail. So after about three months or so, I, I said, okay, this is, I get to go out. So I would do that. So I would, I would, I would roll the dice. I'd go out on a Friday. My buddies from the stockbroker's office would pick me up at the jail. <laughs> we'd go to happy hour at Bobby McGee's, and we'd do our thing, and I'd do my thing. And, and I would stop drinking abruptly uh, on Saturday afternoon at about 6 and start hydrating like crazy so when I went to jail on Sunday night I would be okay I thought well I never got caught that's so I did that for you that was to me that made sense that was that's how you do it that's logical oh I was seeing a shrink too at this time seeing a counselor the shrink is a very important part of my story I don't forget that so because I was seeing the shrink every week while I was in work for a low because I'm crazy I was not an alcoholic. I was nuts. I had a dual personality disorder, don't you know? Clearly self-diagnosed, because I was a psychology major <laughs> at UCLA. I, was, I took psychology classes, so I knew <laughs> that I was, I was crazy. So, and I would, see my, I, would see my, I would see this therapist every week, and so from time to time he would ask me, how much do you drink? Do you think that has an, a, a, an impact on why you're here or your life? No, I don't. I don't drink any differently than anybody else that I know, and they're not alcoholics. Please, let's focus on my dual personality disorder. <laughs> so uh, one day he asked me how much I drank, and some, for some reason I told him the truth. I said, well, um, I have a six-pack of beer at six in the morning, <laughs> and then I go to work. He goes, what time do you get to work? I go, six. So you're having a six-pack of beer. And what time do you get to work? 6.30. So between six and 6.30, you drink six beers. I said, yes. And then what? And then I, I, then I work. And then what happens? And then I start thinking about lunch. So what happens at lunch? So, well, today I had a carafe of wine Okay, well, two carafes of wine at the fish market with some other guys I was with. Did they have any of that wine? No, I, that, those, those, those were my two. <coughs> they had their own. Those were mine. Okay, so what time is this now? Well, it's about 2.30 in the afternoon. So it's 2.30 in the afternoon. You've had six beers and two carafes of wine. I said, yeah. Now what do you do? I go back to work. And what do you do? Well, I call my customers and tell them what's going on. Okay. And then what? Then I started thinking about happy hour. Okay, so do you, so what time's happy hour? Oh, about four thirty, five o'clock. Five o'clock or so. 
okay, so you go to happy bar. So would, do you drink at happy bar? Oh, yeah. But the food is free, so that's okay. So what do you drink at happy hour? I don't know, a few beers? Three, four, five? And then what happens after happy hour? Well, then after happy hour is over, then I start drinking. <laughs> so it's, he's like taking score, and he's asking these questions like, to sound like I'm talking very calmly. So it's about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and you've had a six-pack of beer at 6 a.m., two crafts of wine in the afternoon, and now it's happy hour. You've had probably six or seven beers or so. Yeah, about that. And then you start drinking after that. I go, yeah. He goes, well, what do you drink when you start drinking? I drink Long Island iced teas with Stoli Backs. He goes, do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, no. Everybody I know drinks like this. They're fine. And you're starting to kind of, you know, tick me off a little bit right now. <laughs> so I'm going to prove to you that I'm not an alcoholic. I, I'm going to show you. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I'm not an alcoholic. I can go 30 days without a drink. I don't know what it is about alcoholics, that mystical, magical 30-day number, just pull it out of a hat. And after my 30 days of not drinking, then we can concentrate these sessions on my dual personality disorder because I'm crazy. And he goes, okay, so what do I get if you don't make it 30 days? What do I get? What's the other end of that bet? I go, I don't know. I'm not going to lose the bet. But if you need something, um, I'll check out one of those treatment places that you keep dropping hints about. So we made this bet on a Friday at 5 o'clock. And he goes, I want to see you the following Monday. Because I saw him every Friday. So... I saw him Monday. He goes, well, how you doing? I go, I'm fine. He goes, Did you have a drink? I go, I thought the bet started today. <laughs> <laughs> he says, no. You know that. I go, yeah, I saw him trying to be slick, right? So he goes, so, so, so how long did you last? I said, about 15 minutes. <laughs> it was Friday. It was happy hour. What do you think? So he goes, on top of being an alcoholic, are you also a welcher? Then he, like, insulted me. He insulted my honor. <laughs> so that particular session, I spent calling treatment centers with him in the office that day. So I'm pretty full of myself, and I'm thinking, well, if i got to go to these treatment places, I'll go to where the cool people go. So I called Betty Ford, the first place I called, because <laughs> that's where all the rock stars went. I thought it was pretty ha happening. So... I called Betty Ford, and the call went a little like this. Hi, my name's Jerry. I'm in my therapist's office. I lost a bet. He thinks I'm an alcoholic. Do you take my insurance? <laughs> They're howling <laughs> on the other end. Well, do you think you might have a problem? Well, you know, I drink a lot, and I do other stuff too. But Do you take my insurance? Well, no, we don't. And we're, you know, but you might want to call Hazelton if you're really going to go to a cool place. That's really a cool place. They're just pulling my chain. So I called Hazelton, and they didn't take my insurance either. And then there was a program in Redwood City called Project 90 that mostly dealt with addicts, uh, and they didn't have a bed for me. Then there was a place in Oakland called MPI, Ameripro Health Institute, and they were really, they were really cool. They were very, they were kind of slick. I think they were trying to manipulate me a little bit. Because they said, you know, we, we, we hear you. You know, you might not be an alcoholic. But we have this assessment that you can come and do. 
and we do take your insurance. We check that out. We do take your insurance. And um, we do this assessment, and if you, if that's, at the end of the assessment, if you are an alcoholic, you know, you can we have a bed available like today. You can check in today for 28 days. But the assessment takes about two hours. When can you be here? I had some loose ends to tie up. I was really busy all of a sudden. And uh, I told them I'd get back to them. So that all happened that first session. And then I, this was in May of 1988. And I finally made it to that treatment center in July of 1988. I was very compliant. I learned a lot about alcoholism. I, um, I, got, I graduated. I got my little thing. And my therapist, that I, my counselor, and, and he said, you know, here's Jerry. He was here 28 days ago. He didn't weigh very much, and he knew a whole lot, and he had his stuff together. And it's 20 days later, and he still has his stuff together, and he's leaving. Good luck. So I stayed sober for 40 days out of spite. <laughs> I wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic. I had other issues. So... I was going to aftercare with uh, one of my roommates from um, that treatment center who was not an alcoholic. He was a drug addict. And we're having this conversation on the way to aftercare in this car that I have a license to drive still <laughs> over to Oakland from San Mateo. And he says to me, Jerry, you're not an alcoholic. You're a drug addict like me. I go, what does that mean? That means we can have a beer at this microbrewery before we go to aftercare, a burger. I said, that sounds awesome. So that started my journey of going to meetings, talking about how great it was to be sober when I wasn't. And um, it, in that, and that's what I did. I went, to, I went to meetings drunk. I picked up chips for attendance, not continuous sobriety. That's what I did. I finally got convinced to matter myself that I was an alcoholic because that one of these people that was at that first party that I ever got drunk at, a friend Wesley, knew I was in treatment and went to go see him in L.A. Whenever I went to L.A., I always planned a drink. And Wesley says to me, you're an alcoholic. You're not a drug addict. Let me tell you why. And he told me why. Um... And I could hear him because his dad was a skid row alcoholic. He was a total drunk. And I was a Paul Bear at his dad's funeral. And he goes, like, this is who you are. And when Wesley told me that, the light bulb went off. And I went, like, oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. The good news is I was going to meetings. I went to meetings all the time. I went to meetings all the time. I went to meetings almost every day. I used I don't know why alcoholics that are drinking go to meetings. I have no idea why I did that, but I did. And so at least I knew where to go. And so I would, I'd go, I was living in Santa Cruz by then. I was going to this men's meeting every day at noon because by then I wasn't working. I was unemployable, really. And uh, I would go to Roxas, the old white men meeting in Henry, we used to call it. And uh, these old guys would just tell me how to do it. And I would raise my hand as a new person, every 28 days or every 15 days, or I get 40 days, or I get two months, and you know, and finally there was one guy, Fireman John, that says, Jerry, you can stop raising your hand and saying that you went out. And I said, well, why is that? 
Because you have to come in first, Jerry, before you can go out. Why don't you come on in? And so I did that. Uh, and it took me a while to get done. And when I got done, it happened to be at uh, 10.45 in the evening on New Year's Eve, 1990. It was January 31st, 1989. So my sobriety date is New Year's Day, 1990, because the wheels just came off. I wasn't even drunk yet. I was just getting started. But when you're drinking and you have this information in your head, it's just not that fun. It's just not that fun. And I just got done. So I have eight and a half minutes to talk about what it's like now. That's what happened. That's how I got here. And what it's been like now, it's been interesting. Um, there have been moments and times in my sobriety where I have had everything I wanted and wanted everything I had. I was happier than a gopher in loose dirt. <laughs> Just like, this is awesome. This is amazing. Blessing, 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 blessing. Cool, 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 cool. You know, I've been married twice in this program and divorced. I have an amazing child. He's 12. He's never seen me drunk. Ever. There's another kid that I have. He's 25. That's, that's the one I need to talk about. He lives in Cincinnati. He was on my lap the day that I, was, that I got done at his New Year's Eve party. He was born November 6th. So his birthday's coming up. And uh, had it not been for him, I think, well, he was really instrumental in me getting sober. Because I always said if I ever had a kid, my kid would never see me get drunk, ever. And so I'm at this New Year's Eve party with this baby on my lap, and I'm drinking. And I looked at my kid, and I looked at, the drinks and whatever else that was there, and I said, "That's you know, that's then that was it. It wasn't me. It wasn't like I decided to stop and I stopped. I couldn't. I couldn't. I just couldn't. It just stopped working. It's just like that. It just stopped working. So, and the obsession to drink was not immediately removed from me. I'm not one of those people that that happened. I was going to AA. Everything was beautiful." No, I suffered and struggled with that compulsion to drink because I still I was it was I wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic really still to my innermost self until I went to the book with my sponsor and we read the doctor's opinion and he kind of and it differentiated like what makes me an alcoholic and not a heavy drinker and not a social drinker. What makes me an alcoholic is that when I put alcohol in my body, the phenomenon of craving kicks in. And all bets are off. Normal people don't have that. Heavy drinkers don't have that. Alcoholics have that. I don't ingest alcohol like normal people. And until I got that, I suffered. And as soon as I got that, it's like, oh, that's it. So I can't drink like a normal person because I'm not a normal person. No matter how much time goes by, and my brain still plays tricks with me. Because I didn't have my first drink until I was 18. And that was really late in my neighborhood. And I've been sober a while. And so I add how much time I was sober before I drank, 
how much time I have now. I was like, well, that's a lot of years with not having any alcohol in your body. You might be able to do that now. <laughs> Just socially. You know. No. I have no interest in that. I just don't. I just don't. Because I remember what my life was like when I, you know, I don't forget what it was like sleeping in my car because I got caught sleeping in my office. And you can't do that every day. So I still remember what it looks like and what that feels like sleeping in your car and having this life where you think you look good, but everybody else knows that you don't. I was the last to know that the wheels had come off. Everybody else had knew. It was obvious, except to me. I have the, I'll talk about sponsorship because um, I had an interesting call with a sponsee today, actually. And, uh, and I, told, I called my sponsor before I came, before I came here tonight, too, so um, to stay current. And my sponsor is great. And the, one of the greatest gifts he gave me was um, when I did my fist step. I had done a couple of kind of I'd, I'd done a couple of inventories previous to that with other guys that uh, I hadn't got honest with, and I was still drinking. And that's one thing too. In AA, the steps don't work so good if you're drinking. <laughs> they just don't. They don't work that good. They work better when you stop. Just a note. Um, that's my experience, at least. But I had done a couple of inventories, and um, there was a couple things. Actually, there was you know, there was a thing that uh, I was going to take to my grave. And I'd done a couple of them, and I kept drinking. And so when I got the sponsor that I have to this, to this day, Steve, has been working with me. I've been 25 years with Steve. Uh, when it was time for me to do my fourth step with him, my fifth step, I said, okay, so I'm just going to just open up with that thing. That was my plan. I'm going to show up at his house. I'm going to tell him that thing. And then when he throws me out of his house, I can go get drunk. That's what I'm going to do. And that was my plan. That was my plan as sure as I'm standing here. So I got to Steve's house, and we, you know, he lit some candles, and we did a little prayer, acknowledging the presence of God. And he says, okay, you ready? I said, yeah, I'm ready. Here it is. I'm just going to just open up with this. This shouldn't take long. <laughs> and I told him what it was, and he was like, not, he didn't even flinch. He goes, what else you got? It was this thing that I carried all these years, and I was so ashamed of. And it was like, this is like, I'm a, this is a thing that just fuels my shame machine in my head. This is it, you know. I'm gonna trust them with it. I'm gonna, I drop my rock. That's what we call it. I drop my rock. And uh, he gave me permission to whatever else I had to drop it, and just he just listened to me, and just loved me and laughed a lot, and shared some stuff. And uh, he gave me that gift, and I get to share that gift with people that I work with. You know, he didn't judge me at all, ever. He still hasn't to this day. He laughs at me a lot when I call him. <laughs> but he doesn't judge me. He asks me questions like, are you done yet? How's that working out? Feel okay? Cool. You still doing that? How's that working? <laughs> well, that sounds like a great idea. Sure, yeah, check that out. He's never told me what to do in 25 years. 
ever. He showed me what to do. The other gift he gave me uh, was the gift of uh, meditation and sitting. My sponsor will not leave his house any day until he's done that. He just won't do it. And so that's a gift that I, that I take too. So that's where he asked me. So how's your P&M? Are you sitting? Are you praying? How's, your, how's Zach? How's your kid? Those are our conversations these days. And I'm just so, so grateful for that. I am rich in my relationships with people that I have met, built an AA. It's embarrassing how rich I am. And I thank you for my sobriety. And I thank you for your time. And I thank you for your love. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.